This is Recruiting Daily's Recruiting Live Podcast. Live from Sherman Talent. Real talk about talent acquisition, recruiting, sourcing, and hiring. Are you in talent acquisition? Then listen up, because we're about to blow Blow your your mind. mind. Here's your host, William Tincup. Ladies and gentlemen, this is William Tincup, and you are listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Today we have Ed on from Group Harmonics, and we'll be talking about three things, both himself and Group Harmonics, but his session at Sherm Talent. And uh, lastly, we'll be learning, or we'll be talking to him a little bit about what he's learned in the first two years of the pandemic. So can't wait to get into it. Ed, will you do us a favor and introduce yourself and Group Harmonics? Hi, William. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so I'm Ed Musio. I'm the CEO of Group Harmonics. We have been around since 04, and we are focused primarily on what I call management culture with a capital mint, which is what do we need management doing that they're doing in coordination and that they've agreed upon so that they are creating a culture that looks forward and makes decisions today about tomorrow rather than a culture that sits around talking about what already happened, which is a lot of what goes on in management. So that's that's kind of our high level purpose. And we think about 20% of companies work that way now. So we think we have a lot of job security. Um, they tend to do really well and we can help help a lot more get there. So that's our that's our plan. And with, uh, with, with management consulting, sometimes there's specialization either by industry or uh, size of company or, or things like that. Or do you all have a specific focus or anything like that? We have a focus. It's not by industry or type of company. We do real well. We've worked from sort of small startups all the way up to the Fortune 500, Fortune 100. Um, we've been in tech and insurance and banking and healthcare and medical equipment. Uh, what seems to be the delineator for us is if our clients are doing complex work that requires a lot of cross-functional communication and interaction and decision-making, we make a lot of sense. Uh, if our clients are siloed because that helps their business model, for example, like an old-school law firm has kind of end partners and they each have their own fiefdom, right. we make no sense at all to them. So so anyone who's doing complicated cross-functional stuff, we tend to be able to help them. I love that. So complexity it's, it's almost a knockout question. If they don't have that complexity or that cross-functional, then you're just not, you could work with them. You're just not going to. I can give them some tools around, you know, communication and meetings and things, but most of the, the really unique stuff that we're doing, the really high end, like interacting with executives and their teams, changing the way the company runs in a couple of months, that kind of stuff, it's not going to make any sense because they're not going to want to go where we would take them and, and they don't have to, it's their company, you know, it's Turns only, out. they don't need it. You know, if they don't need it, they don't need it. It's not an easy way to work. It's a necessary way to work. And so, so the, that's way we do it. So the leaders that thrive with you, what do those folks look like? What are the, what are the traits of the, of the leaders that, that choose to work with you, you know, group hormones? You know, my favorite CEOs and, and upper, upper and middle managers tend to be people that are already sort of looking at kind of culture and speed and inclusiveness and kind of, you know, engagement and saying, you know, are we are we sure we're not just tripping over ourselves here? It's taken us a little too long to make decisions, or we tend to make decisions then discover that we made a decision absent one piece of information that, that critically affects it. So we, we tend to work well with leaders and managers who are trying to go faster, but go faster in a way that is inclusive to information and knowledge and input, not in a way that is go faster by telling everybody else to be quiet. Right. Um, those those people exist too, and they also don't tend to, I don't make a lot of sense to them either. Right. Right. It's interesting that you mentioned speed and inclusive and brought those together, which is really, really nice, unique in that someone's done that. Uh, speed, we see that, especially in HR, uh, in, in recruiting, we see that the corporate side tends to think in months, weeks, and, and uh, in days. And candidates and employees tend to think in 
minutes, seconds, hours. <laughs> exactly. Like, do you have these two different things that are you seeing some of the same stuff with with the folks you're consulting with? You know, I think in my world, the the sort of awkwardness is on the one hand, you know, most people that you talk to about making a culture change talk in terms of years. And so when I say, no, we're going to work with the executive team, it'll be different two months from now. They kind of look at me like I have two heads and right. I just go, well, that's why I get to have a job alongside the Deloitte's and the, and the McKinsey's because we have a way of doing this. So in that sense, we're fast. There is certainly a very real sense where when we get in the meeting, it is faster for a manager to say, everybody shut up, we're doing it this way. And that is not better, but it is faster. So there is a sort of a glow, excuse me, a go slow to go fast effect, right. you know, at the sort of the micro level. But at the macro level, we find that if we get the micro level right, we go faster at the macro level. I love that. I love that. And, and, and again, you, you've couched it in, you, you, want, you want a different culture. You seek this out. We can help you get there. And, you know, you're always going to have some folks that are a little slower Kind of, you know, because change is hard. Change is, change is, uh, change is obviously constant. But some folks just don't consume change as well. So there is a lot of change management wrapped into what we do, and yeah. and we don't ever do it as change management. But no. you know, we we do culture change through behavior change. Right. And I could give you a whole talk about that. But basically, change behavior changes culture because culture, as we understand it, is. Uh, systematically habituated patterns of behavior from stuff that worked before. Right. So if we can introduce new patterns of behavior that work now, that's how we change the culture. Right. And that's fast, but it's also not instant. And I think that's the that's the important delineation anyone who's looking to do it is we can do it pretty fast, but not tomorrow. Yeah. It takes a little longer than that. I love that. I love that. Ed, this is so great. Tell us a little bit about your session at Sherm Talent. So my focus on this talk uh, here is on DE&I. And on the sort of, it's sort of like, what is the Venn diagram overlap between what I'm doing in management culture and what makes an organization have greater readiness for DNI? So you're going to plant the seeds of DNI. How fertile is the soil? Because there's there are a number of things actually that that you could say DNI helps them, but you could also say if they're already in place, they will help you with DNI. For example, I'm tall, white, and male, and middle-aged. And if you had seven of me around a table and two of us had a disagreement, what would happen? Um, that's not necessarily an improvement on DEI to change how that happens. But if a disagreement provokes an allergic reaction by the organization and someone has to hide the fact they disagree, that's one possibility. If a disagreement provokes a discussion about, oh, there are different ways to do things, we better figure out what the best way is, that's a different possibility. Um, either way, we may need DEI support. Right. But if we're working our decisions in that second way, right. we're probably going to do better at making the changes DEI is going to ask of us. Yeah, it's those kind of things. Because because again, like you said, this, the soil is fertile. Right. And right. Exactly. It's interesting because you've you've also kind of introduced kind of a chicken and egg kind of a kind of a, a kind of thing where it's like okay. Which one? Which one can actually set you up for success? Right. Is right. It, you know. It, it, you're you're right on it because my last slide is actually a chicken egg slide with a circle, and it's like, where do I start? You know, where should an organization start? And the answer is, there is no an organization. There's your organization. That's so, right. where are you now? And you know, both may be useful, but you know, if you've done DEI and I, yeah. and you're not happy with the traction, maybe this is a place to focus. If you haven't started yet, maybe you roadmap them both. You know, I think it's a it's just something to understand as a compliment. Uh, as uh, for the consulting firm for Group Harmonics, do y'all find yourself auditing folks and kind of helping them understand where that fertility, you know, fertilization is or where they're at on their journey? Definitely. A big part of what we do, especially in the, you know, we have sort of a whole training wing, which is more right. traditional training and, and then we have facilitation and things. But the, you know, if I'm doing the, for example, the interventions with the CEO and team, right. that starts with some upfront kind of diagnostic work where I'm watching meetings and watching interactions and learning how decisions are made and coming back and saying, you know, we have this understanding of what needs to be going on. Here are some places you're doing pretty well. 
here are some places we think you're getting stuck. And, and like I said, the clients that are good clients are already trying to go that way. So they tend to have some strengths and they tend to have some needs and you can't really proceed until you figure out which are which. Well, they're also open to critique. Absolutely. That's, that's one of the things I've learned about consulting is, is, uh, you know, you've got to have somebody on the other end when they hire you that they're open to that feedback. Now, they might not take all of it, but they're open to receiving the feedback. It won't all be right. And that's why I tell them is I need you on the inside to listen because I'm going to get it wrong sometimes. But Sorry. but if they're not open at all, it, then we're not going to get anywhere. And yeah. I, I sort of question what we're doing. Well, why are we here? You know, it's funny. I've had this conversation with a number of executives too when they're looking to hire new people onto the executive team. And if I could do a, like a side soapbox on this, it would be hire people who don't know what they're going to do yet. Because the people that come in and say, I already know everything you need in the first interview, it's very attractive in the interview. But I've seen over and over again, those people come in and they cause trouble because oh, they, yeah. they proceed down their path without noticing the context and what's happening already and what the needs really are. So it's definitely uh, openness is it's just good all around. Well, in the, in the 60s, a lot of the defense contractors, NASA in particular, they would just hire really, really smart people without a job title, without a function, and just go, well, they'll figure it out. Just be smart, right? Just be smart, <laughs> <laughs> which, oddly enough, we're kind of back to that place where we're just hiring people that, you know, you know they'll figure it out. We don't need them to be into this little bitty tiny box that they're only going to be in for six months. There's some truth to that. Although I will say this, I, I started my career in Intel back in the, the 90s. Oh, wow. and, and there was a, a big sort of noticing that went on there. And part of what got me out of being an engineer and into doing this kind of work was they sort of noticed we're promoting these really smart people into management. I have no idea how to manage. They, no one's helped them, you know. And, it, and so we used to run these big sessions and I used to help run them. And, and I met my mentor through this. It was really a big thing that basically said, here's a way to look at what the job is. And that, I mean, that's sort of the, the seed of what became my iterative management, which is how are we behaving as a system to adjust course and to reinforce culture and to drive the thing back in line toward the thing it's trying to get to, as opposed to pretend to manage to the plan oh, yeah. and then run around behind the scenes and do all the work when nobody's looking, which is much of what goes on in management. Two questions. One is, uh, what, what type of engineering degree did you have? It was mechanical engineering, but it was so long ago, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. No, well, my son's looking at mechanical engineering. That's why I asked. I enjoyed it. It was fun stuff. I, I like doing it. Yeah. The, uh, the second is, is you talked about the C-suite, and in particular the CEO. Do you ever get pulled into the board discussions? I haven't done a whole lot with the board. Um, what I, my impression from the ones that I have had is the, how they draw the line of what's theirs versus what's the CEO's to execute, right. I usually fall on the CEO side of yes. it. Not every single time. I've had no, actually no. organizations that do board training have said, no, you're actually on our side. We just don't know it yet. That's right. But usually the way they draw the line puts me back with the CEO. That's right. That's right. Okay, good. So uh, last thing is the pandemic, the last two years. Um, what have you learned uh, at Group Harmonics? What have you learned? What have you learned about your customers? Anywhere I love it, William. Like that's, a, that's a two hour question right there. Um, I will say I think I was fortunate because most of our customers were sort of either multinational or already virtualized, and so they didn't hit that big bump. So, so we had some level of stability. We slowed. We certainly, like everyone, went virtual on a lot of things. Uh, one of the things that I think we really took away from it as a benefit was some of the things we virtualized in some of our training programs, I'm keeping. Like, for example, part of the one-day class on iterative management in my book is people are forecasting their output for the next set of activities because that's what we want you to do in management. You know, good training has you practice the real behavior. Well, in the class, you do that on a flip chart with sticky notes. In the virtual environment, you do that in a, in a live edited Excel spreadsheet that makes your graph for you. I don't need a flip chart anymore. We're going to pull our computers out and use that at the table because that's closer to the real behavior and I want to get as close as I can. So there were things like that that absolutely fell out and, and said, this is better. There were certainly other things. I have a full day simulation that is matrix decision-making for management and leadership. And I've only ever run it live. 
I could virtualize it. It would have a huge cost and I need someone to underwrite that. Right. And I don't think it would ever be exactly the same. I think it would actually be pretty good, but, but I've run it live only and it definitely has a benefit to being live. And even if I did virtualize, I'd still have a live version of that. So I, there's definitely a trade-off there. I love those simulations. I love those simulations. One of my favorite ones was, uh, was on negotiations. So you'd get pitted against each other, right? You know, your union over here or whatever. And, uh, and as you went through the sim- simulation, everything changed. Just it just right. kept changing as you would change and the, the requirements would change. It's just so great. And you'd learn a lot about your I love simulations. You'd learn a lot about yourself and your kind of your, your preconceived notions about how things work or how things fit. So the good ones that seem to have so much of like there's so many things you could take out of it. And right. ours kind of the same thing. It it's a, it creates a complex multi dimensional matrix management challenge in a foreign language, basically, so that you don't have anybody coming in going, I used to run a box company. It's not like that. No, we take all that out of the equation. Everyone's lost. And then it just keeps getting more complicated. And so if you don't kind of run with it and get your behaviors better and better, then you feel some some stress and some pain. And it, it, we've used it for, I mean, we've had tens of thousands of people through that thing. And oh, it, it works fantastic. really well. Yeah, it's just amazing. It's called Dress Rehearsal. It's on our website, if anyone's curious. Oh, you've got to, you've got to actually turn that into a technology just to, just to do it, just to see what it would be like. The, the dork in me wants to do it just I, to see what it's like. I'm with you there. I'm, I, oh, I want you to do it. Um, Ed, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. William, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. And thanks for everyone listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Until next time. You've been listening to the Recruiting Live podcast by Recruiting Daily. Check out the latest industry podcasts, webinars, articles, and news at recruitingdaily.com.